All right. Well, am I on? Am I on? There we go. All right. While everybody is uh, finding their seats, the there's been a modification to the announcements. There will not be men's prayer breakfast this Saturday morning. There will not be a deacons meeting. We'll just cancel the men's prayer breakfast for July. And we'll postpone the uh, deacons meeting until next week on the 28th. The reason for that is because uh, last night at uh, 2.30 in the morning, the Lord took Joyce Collins home to be with him. And uh, this has certainly been expected, but we appreciate your prayers for uh, Jay and for their daughter Karen and her husband um, Steve. And that announcement went out this morning, and the memorial service will be this Saturday morning here at West Houston Bible Church at 11 o'clock in the morning. So uh, be aware of that, those, uh, those changes. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are walking by the Spirit, uh, abiding in Christ uh, living out the spiritual life of the church age believer in such a way that you are enjoying your fellowship, your relationship with God. And when we sin, we can recover simply by admitting or acknowledging our sin to God, and instantly we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful for your grace in our lives. Father, at this time, we are especially mindful of the Collins family. We're mindful of Jay and uh, the lost, but we rejoice with them, rejoice in her uh, victory over death. We know that she is face-to-face with you, and for that we are grateful. And Father, we just pray your comfort will be realized in their life through the word that they know and and the comfort to the family. Father, we pray for others in this congregation, for this is not something that has been uh, known for the last year. We've had several that have lost dear loved ones, and we pray for them that as they continue to grieve and uh, realize the absence of their loved ones, that you will continue to comfort them and strengthen them, and that your word will be very real to them. And as we study tonight about testing and adversity, we know that this is just part of what we experience in the Christian life and in life itself as we live in a fallen world, a world corrupted by sin, that this is the new normal since Adam and Eve fell in the garden. And Father, we pray that as we study tonight that we would be able to uh, learn about these things, be reminded about things we have learned, and press on to greater understanding and reminding uh, reminders about your faithfulness. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, under the category of the pastor also has to learn the lesson that he is teaching, 
I got to uh, 6.50 tonight, which was approximately 45 minutes ago, and had to save my keynote presentation for tonight, and inadvertently saved it on top of, or saved another presentation that was open on top of the one I had worked on for two and a half hours. No time to recover. So tonight is going to be generally an exercise in how we did things 20 years ago. (laughs) You get to have your Bible out. You get to stick your finger in four different places in the text as we go back and forth and underline and point things out. So uh, it will go perhaps a little bit slower than normal. But for some people, they're thinking, good, my brain just can't keep up with some of the things as fast as you've been going the last few weeks. So uh, that's a positive thing. We are in 1 Peter 4.12. I have four slides, so everything else went the way of the flesh. It is somewhere out there in uh, virtual reality trash land. Okay, we're looking at 1 Peter, and last time as I went through the uh, outline for this epistle, focal point in this is standing in grace really in the midst of trial, standing in grace by looking to Jesus and understanding that his undeserved suffering and how he handled it is the pattern for how we handle undeserved suffering. So obviously, as we come to the conclusion of the epistle, this is going to be a re-emerging focus and mirroring a lot of what was uh, was in the opening introduction. So we see this and the emphasis on joy and rejoicing as we look at the opening verse in 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 4.12. As a reminder of the three sections of the epistle, the first section from 1.13 to 2.10 is to stand in grace by girding up the loins of your mind. It is thinking. So, the mental attitude dynamics. It's knowing what we know in Scripture. And we're going to close out tonight by going to the parallel passage for this, which is in James 1, 2 through 4, where James says to count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or tests because you know, that's a causal participle there, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so... um, you know something in James 1, 3, we know something. And so that's the idea. It is that we've gone through the process of Revelation, I mean, excuse me, Romans uh, 12, 2, don't be conformed to the world oppressed into the mold of the world's thinking about suffering and adversity and, and tribulation, but be transformed by the renovation of your mind. So that is... Uh, a summary of what the spiritual life is all about. It is focused on our thinking. So we're to gird up the loins of our mind, which has the idea of removing the distractions and to think objectively based on the truth of the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's in 113 to 2.10. Then the second section, the middle part of this epistle, is to stand in grace by humble obedience to even unjust authorities. And in our relationships, we're always under authority. That always takes us back to understanding the central issue in the angelic conflict, 
which is Satan's rebellion against God's authority. So all rebellion against authority is imitating Satan's rebellion against God's authority. This is why submission to authority, even as as Peter says there to the slaves, be obedient to your masters even when they're harsh. Notice he doesn't say obey your masters even when they're wrong are violating God's word or forcing you to violate God's word. But when they're even when they're harsh, they may not be nice, they may not be pleasant to be around, they may be very strict and have a harsh discipline or whatever, but but be submissive to them in those areas. And so uh, in this section, uh, Peter focuses on those different relationships and, of course, applies it to marriage and the family. And then in the last section, uh, in both the second section and the last section, he uses the standard of what Jesus is going through on the cross as our pattern. That is how we are to face dealing with uh, authorities that are unjust, dealing with suffering that is unjust and undeserved, is that Jesus was absolutely perfect. He did everything right, and yet he is rejected, he's abused, he is physically tortured, and he is punished by one of the most excruciating forms of execution that's ever existed in the history of man. And yet he didn't deserve anything. He was absolutely perfect. So if that's our standard, and if our Lord and Savior has gone through that, then what should we expect other than a similar treatment, even though not maybe not to that same degree. So in both the second section and the third section, the focus is on Jesus. So the third section overall develops that. We are to stand in grace by focusing on how Jesus suffered unjustly for our sins. And last time I had to correct this, this one slide. The opening introduction focuses on exhorting the readers, challenging the readers to live in light of eternity, live in light of our future destiny to rule and reign with Christ. And when we're focusing on the future, that means that today we can rejoice in the midst of our trial because our love for God enables uh, enables us to focus on the glories to come. In the conclusion, the focus is on living in light of eternity and that it's based on humility and standing in God's grace, even in unjust or undeserved suffering. So we start the conclusion section tonight, which begins in verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, what I want you to do is you can turn back to the first chapter with me. We'll come back to chapter 4, but I wanted to point out some parallels that were going on, and I had, of course, had this done very nicely on, on slides, but I have at least these five central verses in this in the first part of this paragraph up on the screen, so you can refer to that as I show the, these parallels. In 4.12, Peter mentions this, uh, do you not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial? Now, what's interesting, and we'll get into this in the uh, word-by-word exegetical study, 
but it doesn't use the word trial here. It just uses the word for something fiery that, of course, stands for this fiery trial. But some suggest that because Peter's writing later than Paul, Paul writes Romans 12 and, and, and the epistle to the Romans, and that, of course, is a, a, a Romans 13 is a challenge to obey the authorities that are established uh, over you and that they are ministers of God, and that is during the first part of Nero's reign. So some people come along and they say, well, because Nero wasn't that bad, he wasn't persecuting Christians in the first part of that reign, then, uh, of course, Paul could write that. But Peter writes to obey the authorities over you during the second half of Nero's reign when he has just gone absolutely uh, psycho against Christians and they are being persecuted, they are being uh, crucified, their bodies are being put on poles and lit at night like torches to illuminate the uh, roads in Rome. And so to say, say it the way Peter says, it certainly brings to mind the possibility of martyrdom and torture and being burned alive for your faith. But he says, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. And that echoes what he says in the introduction in one seven. And in one seven he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, this is in one Six. Though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold uh, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may abound to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the conclusion in verse 12 is echoing what he has introduced in four, six, and I mean in one, six, and seven. In verse 13, he says, But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, the word that's used for exceeding joy is not the normal word we would expect in the Greek. It's a synonym, and it is parallel to the word that is used in um, in First uh, Peter 1, 6, and 7, that... In this you greatly rejoice. That's not the word kara, which is the word that's used in in um, James 1, 2, counted all joy. It's the word hagaliasmas, and that is a synonym, and it means joy, but it's the same word that he picks up and uses and that is translated exceeding joy in verse 13. Then we have an emphasis on the presence of the Holy Spirit as the source of comfort for suffering believers in verse 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now that's interesting because this is an allusion to Isaiah and we have to take a look at the word for rest as it's used back in Hebrew. And that's going to take us back over to a touch on what I've been teaching about rest in our study on worship and the 
and Adam and Eve being put or rested, as it were, into the inner sanctum of the Garden of Eden. So uh, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And then in uh, 1-2, at the very beginning in the salutation of this epistle, Peter says that um, to those who are choice according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by means of the sanctification of the Spirit. So in 4.14, Peter is going back to the theme of the role of God the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the epistle. And then in 4.17, which I don't have a slide of, which means now we do our flipping of pages back and forth, 4.17 we read, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, that is a fascinating verse, and when we get to it, uh, this is one of the most uh, uh, difficult verses in 1 Peter to interpret and is one that is quite challenging. But it picks up and echoes the words that we find in one five: those who are kept by the power of God for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last hour. So uh, 4.17 picks up on that, what will be the end of those. And so that focuses on God's eventual plan at the judgment seat of Christ. And this is also an echo of ideas in five, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, Search where the where uh, Peter mentions the pro, the uh, the prophets who have searched the Old Testament in terms of what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified the beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow those glories that would follow are what's at the end game or the last days the Greek word for that is eschatos, so it, it always focuses eschatos on what is, uh, what's God's plan at the end times. That's where we get our word eschatology, so it always focus our, focuses our attention on eternity and God's ultimate, uh, ultimate plan. So as we look at this epistle, and as we think about the main theme, which is uh, articulated when we get towards the uh, end of the uh, of the epistle in five uh, nine, resist him steadfast in the faith. That's the idea of standing uh, in the faith. Uh, that we are to be perfect and established and strengthened in verse ten. That's that same idea. And then that um, he says to Silas in verse 12, uh, I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. So this idea of uh, where we stand, this is how the believer faces whatever adversities he comes, but he has to on the basis of grace. It's not on the basis of you know, some sort of human viewpoint, philosophy, or system. When we come as believers, when we come to the study of suffering and adversity, 
there are basically two ways the world tries to handle suffering and adversity, the difficulties in life. First of all, they try to act as if it really doesn't exist. This is prevalent in uh, Eastern philosophies. You have what is called monism, and you see this depicted in the yin-yang symbol where you have uh, the little odd-looking black and white parts of a circle, and they're, they're showing there's an apparent difference between the black and the white, but because they're all included within the one circle, that ultimate reality is just one. It is that these distinctions appear simply to us, but they are not ultimate distinctions. There ultimately is no real distinction between uh, black and white or good or evil or suffering and non-suffering. So it's just basically living as if this doesn't really exist. And, of course, that finds expression in some uh, Christian aberrations, such as uh, the Church of Christ Scientist. And this is uh, Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy basically invented that. She was a woman who uh, had enormous number of health problems through her life. And so the way that she is handling all of this adversity is that it is all an illusion, uh, a doctrine that is very similar to Hinduism, that suffering and pain is simply uh, simply an illusion and we just live as if it doesn't e- exist. And so that is one way, uh, one way to look at it. And then another way that uh, in philosophy was Stoicism, that you just sort of sucked it up and endured and somehow that d- made you better. And so in one, you ignore the reality of it. The other, you embrace it, but there's no sense of joy. And what Christianity comes along, and in the Old Testament as well, is that there is a reason and a purpose for suffering. That we may not understand what that is when we're going through adversity and difficulty. And certainly we're going to endure some very difficult, undeserved suffering in this life. But we can have joy in the midst of that. So it's not just this sort of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, uh, grit your teeth, and endure it kind of thing that you would find in Stoicism. Neither is it a denial of reality, but it is embracing the reality of adversity as being God's tool for maturing us. Therefore, even in the midst of the difficulty, we can have joy. It's not an emotional kind of joy. It's not uh, something that's uh, some sort of enthusiasm. It's a mental attitude of stability and tranquility and contentment, even in the midst of very difficult, very difficult circumstances. And so this becomes the focal point of these opening verses in First Peter. He addresses them as beloved. This is the Greek word agapetos, and it's used twice in 1 Peter. It's used here in 4.12, and it's used in 1 Peter 2.11. I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Now, why are they called beloved? Is this because Peter loves them? And this is a term of endearment from Peter to the congregation. Or is this because God loves them? And I think this is also an echo 
of something that is said in the opening salutation. When Peter addresses it, he says he addresses it to the pilgrims of the diaspora in Pontus. By the way, the diaspora of today technically began on the 9th of Av. The Av is the um, uh, month that is we're already in in the Jewish calendar. It is roughly about the time of July and August, and the 9th of Av is the day that the second temple was destroyed. And so every year it floats in relation to the um, in, in relation to the Georgian calendar that we that we follow, and so uh, today when we uh, observe the ninth of Av, that is actually Saturday. That is on July twenty first this year that uh, the Jewish community will mourn for the destruction of the temple. And what's interesting is if you trace Jewish tradition back, they identify dozens and dozens of things that happen negatively to Israel on the ninth of Av. It is the their traditional belief that the first temple, the temple of Solomon, was destroyed by Babylon on the ninth of Av. It is their belief that uh, that some of the uh, plagues that occurred in the time of the Exodus on Israel for their disobedience. Some of the judgments that came at that time were on the ninth of Av. They also point out that several pogroms uh, that occurred in the Middle Ages where you have, uh, for example, uh, it wasn't a pogrom, but under... Um, it wasn't James. It was uh, oh, uh, not one of the early kings. It wasn't Richard. One Richard. It was one of the others. Came along in the in eleventh or twelfth century, uh, kicked the Jews out of England. That decree went into effect on the ninth of Av, and so you go through all through history. The um, Inquisition that began under Ferdinand and Isabella in 1492, also was on the 9th of Av. There were uh, several things that, uh, uh, laws against the Jews that came down during the time of the Third Reich that were intentionally legislated to begin on the 9th of Av. And so this this just runs through, uh, runs through history. And so it was the 9th of Av, in AD 70, when the temple is destroyed, Jerusalem's been destroyed by the by the Romans, that this diaspora, this scattering of the Jews out of out of uh, Rome begins, and so Peter is addressing that diaspora. Now, some people, when you read scholars, they'll they'll say that well, this dias- the diaspora began then, but actually it began on the ninth of Av in 586 B.C. when the first temple was destroyed. And that scattering took place because very few Jews (coughs) who were scattered around the world from that first scattering had returned back to uh, Jerusalem and had returned back to Israel. Uh, Just a small percentage, unlike today where we have almost 50% of the Jews in the world live um, uh, live in Israel now, 
Uh, during the time of Jesus, maybe only 20% of the Jews worldwide lived in Israel. So many of them were still scattered, and those are the ones, those who had become believers are the ones that uh, uh, Peter is addressing here. And they are beloved because of God. They're called sojourners and pilgrims in that other passage I mentioned in 1 Peter 2.11. That takes us back to this uh, reference to them as pilgrims of the diaspora in, in verse 2. And they are beloved of God. Why? Because they are the choice ones. Usually that's translated elect in verse um, verse 2. But that means choice ones, as we've studied before. We've studied about the doctrine of the magnum bar, if you remember, the choice almonds on the, that uh, when I saw that word, um, becherim, that that word means selector choice. And actually, it's translated that way numerous times in the Old Testament. It has the idea of those who are choice, those who are excellent, not those who are picked out. And so it has to do with some inherent quality. And as I've taught before, that is the possession of imputed righteousness. They are choice because they have the righteousness of God. Like Abraham believed God and it was imputed or counted to him as, as righteousness. So this, this address of beloved is that they are beloved of God. And because they are beloved of God, God is sovereignly overseeing whatever adversity uh, comes into their life. And now when we uh, look at this, we see that, uh, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. And so one of the first things that we observe here is, well, before we get into that, I want to point out some things just in terms of general uh, flyover. I tried to create, I had a very nice slide pointing out a number of these things, but I want to point out, first of all, some of the key words that we have here. So you can underline these in your Bible, and, and we have to take time to understand them. First of all, we have the phrase fiery trial here, we have to understand that is, but it brings out that idea of suffering. And that is mentioned again in verse 13, partaking of Christ's suffering. So we have fiery trial in verse 12. We have suffering in verse 13. And um, verse 14, you have the phrase reproached for the name of Christ. This is another uh, category of suffering. Verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer, etc. And verse 16, yet if anyone, uh, yet if anyone suffers. So if you look at those verses, uh, what seems to be the main idea in each of those verses? Has to do with suffering. So we're talking about suffering, but it's not just a negative, because what happens as we go through this, we see in verse 13 the emphasis on joy, but rejoice in the midst of those sufferings to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. And then, and the last phrase says that you may also be glad, that's the word kara, the same word for joy, counted all joy that we find in James 1, 2, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. And then when you get down to 
uh, verse 14, it picks up the idea of glory, which is also parallel to, to being glad. Uh, his glory is revealed, that is, in Christ. When his glory is revealed, you may also be glad. So there's that connection with glory, and that's what is seems to be elevated and emphasized starting in verse 14. Blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And on their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. And then at the end of verse 16, we have again a reference to glorifying God in this manner. So you have an emphasis on suffering, but then that is overcome within the text in uh, having joy because your focus is on the glory of God, and so again it comes back to uh, comes back to mental attitude. So having said that, uh, one of the things we the next thing we should observe is that we when we look at verse twelve is don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. What is he saying here? He's saying here that uh, don't. Uh, don't think it's unusual. Don't think it's strange when you encounter suffering. Don't be surprised by suffering in your life. Don't be surprised because you're going to face uh, loss. You're going to face death. You're going to face hardship, opposition. You're going to face all manner of suffering in this life because that is the nature of living in the devil's world. So the first thing we notice here is his emphasis on suffering that we shouldn't be surprised by. There's a recognition, as I said earlier, of its reality, but also second of its purpose that brings brings joy and blessing. So the second thing we see that's brought out in verse 14 is that we are blessed. This is talking about one category of suffering called suffering for blessing, and it's going to be contrasted with suffering for discipline, which is what's mentioned in 4.15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. So broadly speaking, we talk about suffering in terms of two categories, suffering for blessing and suffering for discipline. Suffering for blessing, broadly speaking, is related to suffering because we have made a bad decision. We have made a decision based on our sin nature, and we are reaping the consequences of that bad decision. Suffering for blessing occurs when we are in right relationship with the Lord, when we're walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, applying the Word, and we are making uh, good decisions, that is, biblically correct decisions for the right reasons. Now, when we suffer for discipline, it's because we have made uh, the decision to do the right thing for the wrong reason or the wrong thing for the right or wrong reason. doesn't matter what the reason is if it's sinful. And so either one of those is going to produce a situation where we are uh, open to God's judgment, his temporal judgment, his divine discipline in our, in our life. So I want to break down about six or seven points here, seven points on the introduction to uh, the doctrine of suffering, understanding, uh, why we suffer. First of all, 
And just in terms of language, there are different categories, different ways in which we talk about suffering. We talk about deserved suffering, and we talk about undeserved suffering. We talk about suffering for blessing, and we talk about suffering for cursing or suffering for discipline. Uh, We talk about uh, unjust suffering, that's the same as undeserved suffering, and we talk about just suffering, and that is the same as deserved suffering. So that's the language that we usually use. So the first category has to do with deserved or justified suffering in the life of the individual, in the life of the believer. And this basically means that we suffer because we are sinners and we make bad decisions. We let our sin nature get the best of us, and then all of a sudden God lowers the boom, and we either just suffer the normal consequences of those bad decisions we enter into a, a bad business relationship. We invest badly without doing the kind of research that we should do. We just do something that's foolish, and then we lose our money, and that is uh, deserved suffering. Or we have uh, it just because we've made a bad decision, and we reap the consequences this is what Galatians 6, 7 says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And I think this is just the first level of divine discipline. We, we realize the negative consequences related to that bad decision. But I think there's an intensified level of divine discipline, which occurs because God then is going to Uh, bring a serious level of uh, judgment into our lives. And this is what David experienced uh, with the sin with Bathsheba. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, and that adultery became known. It was secret, but it became known because Bathsheba became pregnant. And as a result of that, that was going to expose the sin and bring David under... um, shame and under uh, rebuke and reproach from his people. So he decided he was going to make everything uh, make everything right by hiding it, and he entered into a conspiracy with his general Joab to put uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, in the front lines of combat as they were attacking Ammon. And so if he's in the front lines of combat, that would increase his chances and the likelihood of him being killed. And so it was a conspiracy to commit murder. So it intensified uh, the sin. Now, as a result of that, David could have reaped the consequences, the natural consequences, a couple of different ways. But God's going to intensify that. One of the ways he would have realized those consequences is when Bathsheba's pregnant, then it becomes known that David is the father of the child, and that would have brought reproach upon him. Another natural consequence would have been uh, the realization of his committing adultery with Bathsheba would have brought him under the condemnation of the Mosaic Law, and that was a death penalty offense. And so then he was uh, could have been uh, executed. But then what God does after he's done this cover-up is God confronts David uh, by means of the prophet Nathan. Nathan tells a little parable, and as a result, it sort of sucks David into the parable, and David basically announces his own 
uh, disciplined by saying that the judgment that should come upon the uh, man who steals a lamb in the in the parable should have to repay it fourfold. And so Nathan outlines the fact that he's going to suffer a fourfold discipline for this. The child is going to die. Now, that, that baby didn't do anything wrong. That baby that is born of that union uh, with Bathsheba is, is completely innocent of anything, but that baby dies. So that's the first uh, retribution. That's not a normal consequence of committing adultery even when you cause someone to be pregnant. So that's going to intensify the judgment upon David. And the next thing that happens is that one of David's sons uh, rapes his half-sister, and that's going to bring a second level of discipline uh, upon them. Now there is the shame of this sexual sin within the family, and this becomes known. And when it's known within the family, then the third level uh, or the third uh, divine discipline that occurs that's not a natural result of the, of the sin is that another brother, Absalom, is going to kill the brother who committed, uh, who raped his sister. And then the fourth thing that happens is that Absalom leads a revolt against David, and David has to flee. His authority has been completely flouted by his favorite son, who ends up uh, being killed in the midst of the revolt. He is uh, fleeing Joab, and he uh, is riding under a tree that catches his long hair in the branches, and he is killed. So you have these four different levels. That's an intensification of divine discipline. So we have deserved suffering, and it's deserved because it's directly related to a decision that, that we have made. A classic example that is also used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in Hebrews to illustrate uh, deserved suffering is in Psalm 78. And so I'm going to turn into Psalm 78, which is a lengthy psalm of 72 verses. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but part of what is rehearsed in this uh, psalm, which is written by Asaph, is that is the sin of the Exodus generation and how they continued to sin against God and they tested God um, uh, tested God in their in their hearts and they continue to uh, rebel against him and they they reject the manna that God has provided and they grumble and they complain about that that is called the bread from heaven and so he sends them plenty of food in verses 24 and 25 he, they, God's sufficient grace is provided for them but they reject it and they rebel against him and then we come down to verse 29 uh, they ate they're filled for he gave them their own desire he answered their prayer gave them what they wanted but it made them sick and that is part of their discipline. Sometimes God disciplines us by answering our prayers because we are asking for the wrong reasons and we're asking for the wrong thing. 
then if we read on in those verses, starting uh, in verse uh, 31, uh, the wrath of God, that's his divine discipline, his judgment in time came against them and slew the stoutest of them, and he struck down the choice men of Israel. In spite of this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wondrous work. So there continues to be an intensification of discipline because of their, uh, therefore, uh, because of their sin. And in verse 33, we read, Therefore their, da- their days he consumed in futility and their years in fear. So we have this ongoing judgment of God. God is involved in the affairs of man. And when we sin, we go through uh, the first stage of divine judgment through just reaping what we sow and the second stage where God uh, intensifies it. Then in the next category of, of suffering, we have undeserved suffering. And undeserved suffering occurs... When we have not made any sinful decisions, we haven't chosen to do the wrong thing for the wrong reason or a right thing for the wrong reason, and we suffer because we are in some er- some way intimately associated with sinners who make bad decisions or we just live in a fallen world. Uh, we live in a fallen world. This is Satan's cosmic system. And no matter what, we're going to face adversity and we're going to face, um, face persecution, perhaps, and hostility. Job says in Job 5, 7, yet man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And this is just a statement that that we're going to face trouble in this life, no matter what, no matter who you are, no matter how good you are, how righteous you are, or how unrighteous, everybody's going to face uh, trouble and adversity because we live in a fallen world. Job 14.1, man who is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. We live in a fallen world. We just can't expect that it's going to be right. And th- this is really important to understand that this is for the for every human being since the fall of Adam, the norm. It is not, though, God's intended norm. God's intended norm was for man to live forever and for man to not sin and for man to enjoy that ongoing fellowship with him that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. There was not going to be any death. So when Adam sins, that introduces spiritual death into human history. And as a result of that, all of the suffering, adversity, the corruption of creation that's described in Genesis chapter uh, 3, verses 15 and following everything from relational problems, people problems, marriage problems, to problems with the environment. Now there are going to be thorns and thistles, and man is going to earn his uh, food by the sweat of his brow. It's going to be, uh, be difficult. So one of the things that I often point out at funerals is that one of the reasons we feel the pain of loss so much at the time of a death of a loved one is because God has made us this way because it reminds us that things aren't what they ought to be. 
whenever we face any kind of death or separation or things don't go the way that we think they ought to go, and I mean in a right sense, and we face undeserved suffering, it is a reminder that life isn't what what God had originally intended it to be. But especially at the time of death when we face grief, and we realize that grief and that sorrow that someone that has been there by our side, whether it's a parent, a child, a spouse, a friend, that they're no longer there. You can't pick up the phone and call them. You can't uh, send them an email and get a response from them. You can't uh, go over and visit them or go out to dinner or any of those things. They're gone. That is a reminder that life is abnormal. It is not what God intended. And there's a new normal that comes in after Adam and Eve sin, and that new normal is one that is filled with heartache and disappointment and trouble and adversity. Yet, God uses that. So we live in a fallen world, so we're going to face trouble no matter what, but we also face trouble because we become associated with people who make bad decisions. We may not be the ones making the bad decisions, but we're associated with people who make those bad decisions. We're associated with sinners. And this happens in a lot of ways. You can be a very moral, upright individual, doing everything you can to uh, carry out all of the uh, responsibilities for your family in a manner that is consistent with Scripture, teaching the Word, you're doing everything right, but then everything collapses. It can collapse because there's a storm. You have Harvey, and we still have so many people in Houston, some associated with this church, who are still not back to any semblance of normality. I know some people who still haven't made, uh, got, still don't have their architectural plans finished for the rebuilding of their homes. It may be another year or year and a half before they're ever back in their homes. I'm not sure if some all of the synagogues that were destroyed uh, through the floods are back in their home buildings. I think there's one that had to be completely rebuilt. So it is a very, very trying time. But it's not because of any decision they made. It's because of uh, some sort of association. And that association would be that they were living in the Texas Gulf Coast. And as a result of that, they encountered... Uh, the adversity of the weather. You can be involved in other relationships. You can be involved in uh, as a member of the nation where the leadership of the nation makes horrible decisions and it, it makes the nation indebted to a large degree as we have in our nation where our grandchildren will still be paying off uh, our debt that we have imposed upon them. And that is going to bring suffering into their life because the nation's still going to be indebting, you know, getting into greater and greater indebtedness over the next uh, decades, and it will get to a point where they are going to suffer the consequences of the bad decision of leaders that have been elected to make good decisions. So we can have uh, bad associations in a nation. We can have uh, leaders in the state that make bad decisions. We can be in a family where the leaders in the family, where the parents make bad decisions and we suffer the consequences for their bad decisions. You can go to work for a company that makes bad management decisions 
And the next thing you know, you either lose your job or you get a cut in pay or things change and you have to, you still have a job, but you have to work, do the work of five or six people, uh, all because your employer or the CEO or president of the company has made bad decisions. Maybe it's like Enron and the uh, leadership is totally corrupt and they're, uh, they have been wasting the resources and the money of the company. You can be in a neighborhood where the homeowners association makes a bad decision, where neighbors make bad decisions. You can get in a marriage where uh, your spouse makes a bad decision, makes a sinful decision, and that's going to affect you and your uh, your future. It will affect your children. So there are all kinds of relationships that we get involved in that can come back and uh, be the cause of suffering in our lives, and we've done nothing nothing wrong. Uh, the examples that are in First Peter chapter 4 are these are believers who are living as Christians. In First Peter 4.16, Peter says, and this is a unique use of the uh, Christian. It's used in Acts to talk about those in Antioch were the first that were called Christian, but this isn't a normal word that is used. Paul doesn't use it. Peter uses it here for the first time if anyone suffers as a Christian. That is, if you suffer because you are a believer in Jesus as the Messiah and because you are a believer in one God, then this is... Uh, undeserved suffering. And as a result, we can glorify God. So there's this category of, of undeserved suffering that has nothing at all to do with the decisions that we make, but it has everything to do with how we respond to it and the decisions we make after we encounter uh, that suffering. Now, for the believer, we have two options in life. Uh, those two options are that we either walk by the Spirit or we don't. It's a, it's a binary formula. We either walk by the Spirit or we walk according to the flesh. We're either uh, being filled by means of the Spirit or not. We're either walking according to the flesh in Romans 8 or walking according to the Spirit. Those are the only options we have. We know that when we're walking according to the flesh, we're going to encounter a lot of deserved suffering. When we're walking according to the Spirit, we may still encounter deserved suffering, as David did. Deserved suffering because it occurred when we were out of fellowship. But once we recover and we're walking by the Spirit, now it changes the suffering, the adversity changes from suffering for adversity um, and suffering for discipline to suffering for blessing. And we can grow and mature because as we go through, as David did, as he went through that suffering, he faced it with the Word of God, trusting in God and walking with God. And as a result, the, uh, that suffering that was for discipline was changed to suffering for blessing. So when the believer is disobedient, God the Holy Spirit is, is going to bring negative uh, consequences into life in order to get our attention, to reprove us and to rebuke us and to get us to turn back to God. Now, when we turn back to God and we confess sin, 1 John 1, 9, then we are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. But that doesn't mean those negative consequences are going to go away for us any more than it did for David. 
Now, there are some times when God is gracious to us and we do not reap what we sow, and God does not intensify the discipline. And sometimes when that happens, we think we're getting away with it when it still has an impact on our soul. That's First Peter 2.11, that, that fleshly lusts war against the soul. And so there's always consequences, even though they not, may not be that uh, perceptible. So when we confess sin, we turn around, we're back in right relationship with the Lord, and the suffering for discipline can be converted into suffering uh, for blessing. And we're reminded that no matter how, how much we sin or whatever we do or however long it lasts, as long as we're still alive, God, uh, God is, still has a plan for our life, and we can recover and we can go forward and we can uh, see a tremendous amount of blessing in our lives again if we are walking with the Lord. But because we all live in a fallen world, we will all face suffering and adversity. That is the new normal. It is abnormal when we look at it from God's perspective. And that's why in 1 Peter 4.12, Peter is saying, don't be surprised by this. It is to be expected if you understand that we're living in the devil's world. But the reality is, if you don't have the Word of God, if you don't understand the teaching of Scripture, then you only have two two options. One is to just be in denial and act as if there's no such thing as good or bad. And the other is you just sort of face it with a stiff upper lip and try to handle it on your own resources. But God's solution is quite a bit different. And that's uh, stated in 1 Corinthians 10.13. Now that's another interesting passage. So you might want to turn there to 1 Corinthians 10, and let's look at the context here. This is very important. It's a promise that we often refer to and we often quote, that there is uh, no temptation that has overtaken us except as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, that verse down in verse 13 comes at the end of a long section. What's the focus of that section? It's the same focus that we had in Psalm 78. It is Israel's sin in the wilderness. Israel's sin and failure to be uh, appreciative and grateful to God. And the, the chapter begins, Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and ate the same spiritual food. So he is referring, as he's writing to a mixed audience of Jew and Gentiles who are all believers, he's talking back to the, our spiritual fathers in, in the wilderness generation. They all ate the same spiritual food. This is the manna, Exodus uh, chapter uh, 16, 13, they drank the same spiritual drink in Exodus 17, 6, and um, they drank from the same spiritual rock, which is Christ. But what happened? Verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They went through divine discipline to the point of uh, sin unto death. Verse 6, now these things became our example to the intent that we should not lust 
after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, and that was a whole uh, golden calf incident. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and one day 3,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, verse 10, nor complain. I know nobody here ever complains. Um, now, all these things happen to them as examples. So they went through divine discipline and divine judgment as an example. And then Paul says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take, take heed lest he fall. No temptation. There's the, that verse. It fits in the fact that those uh, Israelites in the wilderness were tested. That's the word what temptation means. The root word, as we'll see, is pirosmos, which has to do with the test. Now, a lot of people get the wrong idea. They think of a test as going through some significant event, that when you go through uh, some sort of suffering or some sort of adversity, that that's the test. That's a shallow view of a test. A test, biblically, happens every time you have to choose between obeying God and applying his word and doing it your way. Every time you have to decide in a life situation, no matter what it is, whether you're going to do it your way or God's way, that's the test. Whether you're going to obey the word or disobey, that's the test. Sometimes those involve really serious, significant situations, and sometimes they don't involve difficult situations at all. You wake up in the morning, and you decide you're just going to not... Uh, read your Bible that day, you're not going to pray, you're just going to forget about God for a while, and you fail to test. You fail to focus on the right things the right way from the very beginning, and pretty soon you're going to realize that you're out of fellowship and you need to deal with it. So, no temptations overtaken you. No, there's no test that isn't common. Categorically, there, we've all gone through the same types of test where we have to choose to obey God or not. But God is not going to allow us be, to be tested above what we are able. Now, as a church-age believer, we've been given the ability at the instant of salvation through the Holy Spirit, and then as we grow through the Word of God, potentially to handle every situation. The Word of God, what I mean by that is you may not have learned the word yet, but potentially it's there. God has given you in the word the means to be able to face and surmount any any test that comes your way. So what that means is not what you often hear people say, well, well, God's not going to test you above your ability, so you have the ability to handle this, so just power on. That's not what it's saying. It's saying God has given you the ability to handle any and every test that comes your way because you have the Spirit of God who dwells in you, you have the Spirit of God who can enable you, and you potentially have the Word of God you can go to for the principles and the promises you need to face the situation that you're in. And so the next phrase he says, but with the temptation will make the way of escape. And that doesn't mean to get away from the test because the next line clarifies it that you may be able to endure it. So the issue in testing is to endure it, 
But as we see in 1 Peter 4.12, we are to endure it with joy. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. And that's going to take us to James 2 because it's parallel, and we'll start there with an introduction in James 2 uh, next Thursday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, be in your word, to be refreshed by your word, to be reminded that we live in an abnormal world, a corrupt world, a fallen world, that we should not at all be surprised when things go wrong. We should not at all uh, get upset or get out of control or rebel against you because things don't go the right way because that is what our expectation should be living in a fallen world. But on the other hand, we know that you have empowered us, you have provided for us, you've given us your word in the Holy Spirit to strengthen us and to sustain us, no matter what those circumstances may be, so that we can have real joy in the midst of difficult times. And Father, we pray that as we study this, that you will strengthen our faith in you, help us to understand more fully how to implement these principles And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.